This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I bumped into Larry Hogan, the former Maryland governor at Fox yesterday, and we had an interesting conversation. He had just finished announcing the day before that he will not run uh, for president. I was not surprised by that. I don't think he had a chance in hell of winning the nomination. And he himself acknowledged that if the field is too crowded, you're handing the nomination to Donald Trump, and that's the person he most wants not to get it. Um, I told him, first of all, he's um, he left office with a 77% approval rating. He won 30% of Democrats in his elections as a Republican in one of the bluest states in the country. So he was, you know, took a bipartisan approach and compromised. Doesn't mean I agree with everything he did, but, and he also survived uh, a very difficult bout with cancer. But the thing that caught me is I said that I once covered your dad. His father, Larry Hogan Sr., sort of became famous for serving on the uh, Watergate Committee and was one of those who turned against Richard Nixon, despite the fact that they were in the same party. That was before my time. Later, he ran for uh, county executive, Prince George's County Executive in Maryland, and I was a rookie reporter at the Washington Star. And I loved, I loved working there. It was the scrappy afternoon paper, kind of a dinosaur, uh, taking on the big, bad corporate Washington Post. Um, So I mentioned that to him, and he said, well... I once delivered the Washington Star, and that was as close as I got to journalism. So we laughed about that. And then I told him that growing up in a different part of the country, I once delivered the New York Post. So uh, we sort of bonded over that. So I want to go into this scientific study that I'm going to challenge. And it's not that I'm anti-science. This is not political. It doesn't have to do with vaccines or lab leaks or whatever. But I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, The website Study Finds reports that human beings can't stop looking at themselves in the mirror, a new study explains. That's not the part I disagree with. An international team finds that people spend one-sixth of their lifetime trying to enhance their physical appearance. That's four hours a day, every day, for both men and women, the young and old, according to researchers. Okay, this is where I have to stop. And this is not intended to denigrate anybody, but there's a much more focus in our society on the appearance of women. It's just the way it is. Um, Now, I'm in a television business where, obviously, you have to worry about how you look, and I have makeup people help me look good, uh, but, you know, they spend a lot more time on the women, not because they're favoring them, but because, you know, the hair is more elaborate and, and all of that, and the wardrobe is more elaborate. I mean, you know, take it away from TV or any profession like that. Typical guy, what? I don't know, seven suits, maybe 15 ties. How often do people comment? Uh, uh, oh, I really liked your tie. Oh, you look great. I mean, wasn't it, there were, years ago, there was an anchor who wore the same suit for like one year solid and nobody noticed. That's how I look at it. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it puts a little bit more of a burden on women, of course. When you walk into a woman's closet and, you know, there's, you know, 35 dresses, uh, 82 pairs of shoes. I mean, it's just a different realm. Anyway, back to the piece. Why do humans have such an obsession? This is a global survey of over 93,000 people in 93 countries. This is like, don't even try to replicate this, dude. One of the reasons is obvious. They want to look good to attract a lover. However, in the digital age, and this I do completely agree with, the study finds that people are more likely to fuss over their appearance if they spend more time on social media. Many chasing unrealistic standards of beauty. Right? You know, if you're posting stuff on Instagram or even your profile picture, which you know some people change like every four days, I don't know, um, then you got to look good. And it's not something that you had to worry about uh, 20 years ago where you only had to look good if you were actually going to be in contact with other human beings. So the evolutionary reason is that good looks was always thought to signal good health and good genes and that, you know, you would have healthy children, Um, especially for those who are young and unmarried, of course. Um, but attracting a male isn't the only, a mate, excuse me, don't mean to be sexist there, isn't the only reason people work on their beauty all the time. There is also pathogen prevalence hypothesis that people with a history of disease spend more time enhancing their appearance uh, to cover up signs of the disease, putting on makeup, grooming their hair, selecting clothes, personal hygiene, going on a diet. The study also finds that women in countries where there is more gender inequality tend to spend more time working on their appearance. Those in countries that place more value on individual accomplishments also appear to place more emphasis on their looks. What well, seems to be a large chunk of the population. Anyway, all I can tell you is I'm not spending four hours a day worrying about this, uh, even including the days that I'm on TV. Um, but it's, it's interesting. It's something I hadn't really thought about, and the social media aspect, I think, is interesting as well. So today's budget day. That means the White House, Joe Biden, is going to put out his budget, and they've already leaked it to the big papers to get a more detailed story before the Republicans will take shots at it today. It says the White House, in trying to rescue Medicare, will not only reduce what Medicare pays for prescription drugs— in an effort to, you know, produce lower prices for seniors, but will raise taxes on Americans earning more than $400,000 a year. That's always been Joe Biden's sort of red line about who would be taxed above that number and who would be taxed below that. Uh, Forecasters warned that a key Medicare trust fund will run into major financial problems within five years. So something's got to be done. Biden, in the statements that have already been put out and the stories that I'm seeing uh, in the big papers uh, is, is trying to say that I would bolster the program for 25 years. What are the Republicans got? But Biden couldn't get the uh, tax hike on those earning over 400000 when his party controlled both houses of Congress. Do you think Kevin McCarthy's house is going to go along with this? I mean, that part of it is then on arrival. So then, you know, he takes a stand while I would tax the rich or affluent, however you want to call it. Um, Here's another little item, Uh, Donald Trump writing on Truth Social. As a rather unimportant fake news report, as per a rather unimportant fake news report in the New York Times, I never asked 
Sarah Huckabee Sanders for an endorsement. I give endorsements. I don't generally ask for them. With that being said, nobody has known more for her than I have, with the possible exception of her great father, Mike. This stems from a story, multi-byline story, with one of the people who worked on it is Maggie Haberman. And she posted, she put up an image of Trump's post and said, yes, he did. And here's a quote from the article. She's not saying whether she personally got this information, but she's vouching for it. On a call weeks ago, Trump asked uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders of Arkansas, his former press secretary, of course, to endorse him. And she replied that she would not do so yet, according to two people briefed on the discussion. So we have another round of uh, Trump versus Haberman, uh, the earlier round coming from her book, Confidence Man. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Story number one. Sometimes you sit down and write a column, and when you finish it, you say, hey, not bad. I I was happy to be able to make these points. You just feel like it kind of clicks or it works. Uh, I mean, if it doesn't work at all, you don't publish it, but... If you write a lot of columns, as I do, like not everyone is going to be uh, an award-winning gem. But the column I have today, I think, touches on... If you take 10 steps back, or go up to 30,000 feet, whatever metaphor you prefer, uh, this 2024 season is bizarre. I mean, for lots of reasons you're already familiar with. But you have all of these Republicans who are either already running against Donald Trump, we'll start with the Republicans, or gearing up to run or could run, not all of them will run. And yet, they're all afraid to criticize him. They're all, many of them don't even mention his name. They take these little veiled shots, and that's as far as they will go. So it starts off by talking about Ron DeSantis in a Brian Kilbeade radio review, asked about all the shots that Trump is taking at the Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron or whatever the nickname of the day is. And he said, it's silly season, you know, uh, obviously he does his thing and that's kind of who he is. So he just, he's not going to engage. And that's smart. Um, because as I said on Special Report last night, I was on the panel with Brett Baer, DeSantis' campaign between now and the end of May is the Florida legislative session. Because unlike senators or congressmen, governors can actually get things done in their states and brag about them. They also are on the hook when things go wrong in their states. And so DeSantis has got this whole agenda, uh, culture war issues uh, like diversity and so forth, what's taught in schools, as well as concealed carry permits for guns, as well as uh, tightening libel laws, making it easier to sue and win. And he's got, his party controls the legislature, so most of that will probably pass. And then he can say, look, here is what I've accomplished. This is not just rhetoric. Um, But it is just so striking. I mean, I get that it's early. It's really early. So, like, why, especially if you haven't declared, I mean, why get into a mud fight with Trump when he is the master mud wrestler of 
the modern uh, political era. But you go through each one, and this is where I thought um, you see the pattern. So Nikki Haley, just not going to criticize Trump. She, when she's asked about it, she says, I don't kick sideways, I kick forward. I still don't know what that means. Uh, she was, of course, Trump's UN ambassador. She's talking about mental competency tests for candidates over 75 and moving on from 20th century politicians. But, you know, everybody knows what she's talking about, but she won't really take Trump on. And she's been asked in interviews, where do you differ on policy? I mean, how is that not fair when you're running against the obvious front runner? It's not a question of, you know, uh, attacks or nicknames or personal invective. How would your policies differ from those of former President Trump? And she said on the Today Show, you guys are obsessed with me talking about him. Yes, the reason is you're running for president. And in order to get the nomination, you've got to get by this guy. All right, Mike Pompeo, he was on Fox News Sunday. He was asked, would you deal with the national debt, which greatly increased under Trump, uh, better than Donald Trump? And he was very clever. He said, I think a President Pompeo or any conservative president, will do better not only than what we did in the four years of the Trump administration, but Barack Obama, George Bush. So he at least he mentioned Trump's name, but he kind of spread the criticism around. And he happens to be right on this, that uh, the debt, as well as the deficit, uh, have been rising uh, through several administrations, R and D. But then Shannon Bream asked him about this slam he took at CPAC against following celebrity leaders with their own brand of identity politics, those with fragile egos who refuse to acknowledge reality. Hmm. Fragile egos who refuse to acknowledge reality. Who could he be talking about? And he sized up the question. Well, I'm talking about the people, and he just completely, like, went in a different direction. So what is up with that? I understand. Look, we all get it. None of these Republican candidates or would-be candidates want to alienate the powerful MAGA base. Uh, They want to defeat Trump, but they want to be able to get backing from most of his voters. So if they piss these people off, their chances of winning a general election, if indeed they got that far, greatly diminished. Now, Mike Pence has been a little more uh, candid in chastising Trump over January 6th, which only, you know, endangered his life as he and his family hid from the mob. But then he says things like, we can do better. And then he brags about the accomplishments of the Trump-Pence administration. So talk about trying to have it both ways. And it doesn't work in politics. We accomplished all these things, me and Donald Trump. However, you know, there are better choices. And um, he did did break with him on Medicare and Medicaid. Pence knows, as a former uh, member of Congress, that... uh, it's unsustainable the way it is. Um, then we have Larry Hogan, so he's out. And then I look at the other side, okay? All of these stories about Democrats who don't want Joe Biden to run. And where do you think these stories come from? There's a whole bunch of Democratic officials who are sort of revving their engines, hoping that Biden gets eased off the track, or... Possibly a younger Democrat actually has the guts to jump into the race and challenge Biden. Doesn't seem that likely right now. He's going to announce in April. I don't think there's any secret about that, really, barring some unforeseen set of circumstances. And 
privately, a few of them have gone on the record. You just have a situation where they've concluded he's doing a, a, a pretty good job now. I mean, after all, outperformed, his party outperformed in the midterms, well-received State of the Union speech, uh, the secret vi- visit to Kiev. But that's now. And on election day, he'll be coming up on 82. And of course, if you've heard this a million times, uh, by the end of the second term, he'd be 86. So a lot of Democrats, they're all getting ready to run if for some reason he should falter. I don't really see that happening. So you have this sort of bizarre situation where neither, I mean, saying silly to say that Biden's the front runner, but he is the incumbent president of the United States. He lives in the White House. The front runner in both parties aren't really being frontally attacked, even by those who want their jobs. In the case of the Democrats, it's a little bit different because you would take an awful lot of heat for challenging a president of your own party. And it's no secret that the last two presidents who faced a serious challenge from within their party, George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter, both lost re-election. Story number two, there's been a lot of heated rhetoric about Kevin McCarthy's decision to give, what is it, 40,000 plus hours of footage from the Capitol riot to Fox's Tucker Carlson. And this went up as high as the, you know, Chuck Schumer all going apoplectic over the fact that somebody who works for Fox would get first crack at this. And McCarthy actually said to a couple of reporters, like, haven't you ever had an exclusive? He says he's going to provide it to everybody, meaning all of the media. Afterwards, I don't know how much time will elapse, but last night, uh, Tucker's show played some of the footage. Uh, And I'm just going to read you what he said. And you decide for yourself. The protesters were angry. They believed the election they had just voted in had been unfairly conducted. They were right. In retrospect, it is clear the 2020 election was a grave betrayal of American democracy. Given the facts that have since emerged about that election, no honest person can deny it. Then he aired a few minutes of the footage, and it showed, you know, trespassers who weren't committing any violence. Um... The footage does not show an insurrection or a riot in progress. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. By controlling the images you are allowed to view from January 6th, they controlled how the public understood that day. They could lie about what happened and you would never know the difference. He said some of these people would just sightseers. Um, He did say there were some violent hooligans. Not a word you hear too often these days. Um, But he said most of those present weren't violent. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. These were sightseers. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously revere the Capitol. Okay, so I think insurrection is such a loaded word that I can certainly understand why many people, given the circumstances surrounding that awful day, feel comfortable using it. I can also see why others say it's going too far. To say that it wasn't a riot, I I have a hard time understanding that. But, you know, if you would ask me yesterday, did most of the people who entered the Capitol on that day commit violence? I would have said no. 
clearly there were certain people, you know, I mean, look, four people died. Two Capitol Police officers uh, committed suicide after the events. And nevertheless, you could see a lot of people were just sort of swept up in the crowd and walking around. But it doesn't matter, in my view, because there were enough violent people there. And, you know, remember, people forget a couple things. One is members were fearing for their lives. I mean, this was a traumatic event for everybody who was in the Capitol that day. And, and secondly, it could have been so much worse had that one police officer not led the mob in a different direction. I mean, it just could have been so much worse. Fortunately, it was not. So I'm sure today all the criticism will come and then other journalists presumably will get their hands on this. And, and, but, you know, it just reminds me, news organizations get criticized when they say, let's just say Seattle or Portland or Atlanta, where there was a violent clash with uh, some Antifa members and others uh, throwing Molotov cocktails at the site of a police training facility. They say that you can't call it a mostly peaceful demonstration if there was all this violence and cars got smashed and people got arrested. But if you parse the language... It doesn't mean everybody there engaged in violence. It may have been only 10%. It may have been only 5%. But try telling that to the people whose property was damaged, whose cars were smashed, who were injured or killed, and their families. And so that's, I think this is a question of how you view, what lens you view it through. And we'll see how the story plays out. Number three, Jim Jordan, we talked about this on Special Report last night, um, has started subpoenaing and interviewing for his subcommittee, the one that he chairs, on the weaponization of the FBI. And look, as chairman, he has every right to look into it, but he's got to prove his case. And Democrats are complaining they're not getting as much information about it. So, so far, apparently, although they've asked to speak to a lot of folks, um, there have been three witnesses who've been interviewed. And what the Democrats are doing, and of course, obviously they're playing defense, is to say these aren't really whistleblowers. They're conspiracy theorists who didn't provide any evidence of wrongdoing to the subcommittee. And one of them, or possibly more, claimed the Capitol riot, there's that word again, was a setup. So the danger I see for the Jordan subcommittee is that all this turns into a partisan food fight. And then many people will just tune out. I also think, I mean, this is really hot inside the Beltway. I don't think this issue resonates out in the real America in a way that the price of eggs does, in a way that cutting aid to Ukraine does for those people who are looking to House Republicans for change. And I also said on the air that politicization of the DOJ was not exactly unknown during the Trump years because President Trump, just did it out in the open. You didn't have to have some huge congressional investigation. He would say that political allies of his, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, were being railroaded, and he would say political enemies of his, or opponents, I should say, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, should be prosecuted. And at one point, 
Bill Barr, the then Attorney General, was planning anyway on challenging what he thought was a way overly lengthy sentence for one of these Trump allies. And, but then it looked like he was doing Trump's bidding. And that's when he said, you're making it, to the president, you're making it impossible for me to do my job because it looks like he's carrying Trump's water when he actually thought that was the right thing. So just making that point as far as um, politicization, weaponization, it all, deter- it all depends sometimes on which side of the aisle you're on or what the evidence is. And I guess the other question is how long does this drag on? If it drags on for a long time and then ends up going in a different direction, then it will have been a bust. If in a fairly compact time frame, Jordan can show that there was a lot of political bias at work within the Federal Bureau, which Christopher Wray, in his interview with Brett Baer, absolutely denied, uh, then that may be a different story. It may well be a different story. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Number four, I want to talk about Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, because we did this on the show on Sunday. And I think, in my humble opinion, I was more fair to Scott Adams than anybody who's covered this. I spent a couple of hours watching his videos. I talked about, you know, how he called black people a hate group. I talked about how he said that white people should just stay the hell away from black people. Um, And I played this for the audience, including Adams being very cognizant of what he was doing. He said, my income by next week will be almost totally gone. You can't come back from this, right? And then I also played, it's a lot of sound for one segment, you know, his subsequent efforts to say this was not racist. And the explanation was, I wasn't so, I was using hyperbole in talking about black people. And then um, I was really saying that black people tend to live in poor neighborhoods. Poor neighborhoods tend to have high crime. So you should stay away from those neighborhoods. But he didn't say it that way. And Scott Adams knows about the use of uh, words. You know, that's what he does. And I've always liked Dilbert, by the way, which, as you know, has been canceled by the entire newspaper industry. Um, So, he tagged me on Twitter and said, you know, you didn't bother to call. These stories are totally unfair. I don't know if he watched it or not. But I I had so many hours of his own words, and not only he would have told me something very similar. Anyway, he did his first TV interview last night with Chris Cuomo on News Nation. And he said, social media shows an anti-whiteness bias. Businesses do. All these corporate and government things. What I want your audience to know is when I complain about black people having a bad attitude about white people, 
That was me saying nothing about black people. It was saying, I don't want to be around people who have a bad feeling about me. I'm not sure that quote helps him all that much. And when he refers to black people, he does not mean all black people. So Cuomo says, you need to do some kind of huge disclaimer. You're saying, I'm about to say something to rile people up, and I'll push back on this. I've read you saying that this was a poll that changed course for you. Um, And white people getting away from black people, says Chris, there are a lot of people who really believe that, Scott, and now you are counted among them. How do you counteract that? Adam said white people are primarily responsible for his cancellation. I played that by two because it's white people who canceled me, he says, meaning people who own publishing companies because he had a book that was dropped as well as the newspapers. You don't think black people were offended, said Cuomo? Well, every black person I've talked to, and of course a lot of people contacted me, meaning their fans, said, hey, what's going on? Look at the context. Well, if, if he was taken out of context, this is kind of his own fault, but I want you to hear his side in his first television interview. Um, so he goes on to, to tell News Nation, so black America is actually completely fine, both conservative and liberal, if they see the context. Separately, uh, he texted the Washington Post, I shook the box intentionally. I did not realize, realize how hard I shook it. He didn't apologize. Uh, that episode has been viewed more than 360,000 times online. He says he disavows racism. And in a follow-up on his Real Coffee podcast, he called both white people and the press hate groups. So if you start off by saying black people are a hate group, and then white people are a hate group, and then the press is a hate group, how many groups does that leave that are not in that category? All right, number five, I got a whole bunch of tech news here, so just sit back and enjoy. AP has a story saying over the last 11 months, someone created thousands of fake automated Twitter accounts, perhaps hundreds of thousands of them, to offer a stream of praise for Donald Trump. Now, let's not jump to conclusions here, given the past history. Uh, Beside posting adoring words about the former president, the fake accounts ridiculed Trump's critics from both parties, and attacked Nikki Haley. Uh, When it came to Ron DeSantis, the bots aggressively suggested that the Florida governor couldn't be Trump, but would be a great running mate. Uh, Whoever created the bot network, and we don't know, is seeking to put a thumb on the scale, using techniques pioneered by the Kremlin. Yes, doesn't mean it is the Kremlin. Could be homegrown. Doesn't mean Donald Trump knows anything about this. Um, here's a guy from the company Cyabra who, um, I guess came up with this analysis. One account will say Biden is trying to take our guns. Trump was the best. Another will say January 6th was a lie and Trump was innocent. Those voices are not people. For the sake of democracy, I want people to know this is happening. Yeah. I mean, if it's at that level of saturation, I'd like to know more about it too. Variety has a story saying that Elon Musk will be at the center of a new documentary from Alex Gibney, the Oscar-winning director of Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. So this has apparently been in the works for months. Gibney just announced it, said he was hugely excited about this. A definitive and unvarnished examination of the CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, and Twitter. 
Now is the moment for a rigorous portrait of Elon Musk. He says it was undeniably one of the most influential figures of our time. Yeah, it was time person of the year. Um, And they're going to examine Musk and his uh, impact on the world. Now, I think it also said that uh, he's not cooperating. And, you know, he does have three companies to run and probably doesn't think this is going to be a flattering portrayal. On the website Deadline, Elon Musk, there's a lot of Elon Musk here, said he was rolling on the floor laughing my ass off at a BBC investigation which showed that trolling, hate speech, and disinformation have grown on Twitter since his $44 billion takeover. Musk made fun of the uh, uh, web story's headline, Twitter can't protect you from trolls anymore, (laughs) saying it was not exactly a utopia before he bought the company. Sorry, I'm doing this sarcastically because I think that's how it's intended. Sorry for turning Twitter from nurturing paradise into a place that has trolls, he tweeted. He later added, real article from organization calling itself BBC. In another post, um, (laughs) Musk wrote, he was literally LMAO, to an anonymous Twitter user with 2 million followers who said, before Elon, I never had anyone say anything mean to me ever. It was a beautiful utopia. Now I fear for my life daily. All right, that sounds a little bit of hyperbole. And another reply to a user named Shaman of Avalon, who claimed that trolls are half the fun of being on here, must said, have to admit, trolls are kind of fun. The BBC said Twitter did not reply for any requests for comment. Musk provides his own sardonic response um, to these things. Uh, There is also, the BBC is doing this as a panorama documentary. That's a well-known program in the UK. Interviewing current and former Twitter employees including Lisa Jennings Young, former head of content design, who said Musk had fired a safety team that she had led. For someone on the inside, it's like a building where all the pieces are on fire. A Twitter employee said, and I guess some of this was put out as a tease. When you look at it from the outside, the facade looks fine. But I can see that nothing is working. All the plumbing is broken. All the faucets. Everything. BBC says in a statement, both Twitter and Musk were approached during the making of the film and prior to broadcast to comment on specific points raised in the film, they declined to respond. Now, last point about on the inside, it looks like everything's on fire. Here's a Washington Post story that begins, Elon Musk's Twitter is a house of cards. On two occasions recently, almost exactly a month apart, minor changes to Twitter's code appeared to break the website. The latest outage came Monday as thousands of users found they could not access links, photos, or other key aspects of the site. Now, that is a tragedy, I will admit. And you got to expect these glitches. I mean, he ended up firing more than 75% of the staff. It's amazing that just keeping it running hasn't had more problems. But, you know, there's so much scrutiny, so much media attention to every single thing that Elon Musk does, and to Twitter... A lot of it from people who do not wish Musk well. Some of it from people who are very glad 
that he's taken it over and put out the Twitter files with all the revelations about things in the past. Um, and I guess the price you have to pay is sometimes it ain't working. I mean, you know, Facebook said glitches. It's not like it's unheard of in the social world. I think if it keeps happening, then it becomes a branding problem. And then maybe people feel like, well, this is too much trouble. I don't, because I got to be on it. I still find it very useful. I don't understand these people who say, I never, I don't see posts from um, 90% of the people I used to see. There, there are two choices on there. One is for you, where they sort of curate it, and then there's a lot of the people you follow. The other one is just following, where you only get people you follow. And if you like the old Twitter, then you pick the second one. Thanks so much for sharing this time with me as we navigate the media and political landscape. If you would like to subscribe, and you're probably tired of hearing me say this, uh, why don't we mix it up? Amazon Music is a good place to do it. You don't get any ads. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Music.